If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to go to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 4, in keeping with the tradition of your church, I'd like to read verses 1 to 14. And in honor of the Word of God, Brother James told me that you guys stand when we read the Word of God. So would you do that with me? That is a tradition I love dearly, having been to Russia a couple of times, and been with a, a group of believers that don't have the Bible as readily as we do. Things in Russia that they don't do, they never put their Bible on the floor because they cherish it too much, and they always stand when they read or pray. So I, I just, that always reminds me of that when we're with people. So this is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which was a conglomerate of churches, He has written now the first half, and now he's going to change gears when you get to chapter 4 and see if you can pick up on that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, plural, the churches, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's what this looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, how? In the bond of peace. Now he's going to elaborate on that. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9 is a parenthesis. He says, in saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Why? That he might fill all things. And here's the result, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain, notice this, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind. Of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you so much, church. You can be seated. Of a very simple title to this sermon, I try in my title to capture the thing that I want you to take with you from verses 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians chapter 4. And that is this, three little phrases, learn it love it, live it. And, and that is not original to me. I wish I could say it was. 
Uh, in my last ministry at Grace Baptist a number of years ago, about in 2010, we started a relationship with churches in Jamaica and our Christian school, uh, grade, our grade 11 and 12 kids, we want to expose them to missions. So every two years, we take all the 11 and 12 kids in the, in the school and send them down to Jamaica for a 10-day missions trip down there up in the hills. Uh, they stay at a really remote Bible college and just go to all these different churches and to a school for the deaf and a, 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 a school for those that are uh, mentally delayed or have physical handicaps that have been rejected by the culture and they get exposed to something bigger than themselves. And while I was at a chapel where our principal was addressing the student body and prepping the grade 11 and 12s particularly with this missions trip, his motto for them was learn it, live it. And I thought that was very fitting for a Christian school. A place where you go and you are going to learn things and you're going to learn where Bible is actually a class, where there's chapel and all these things. But a lot of these kids, I have three of them that experience this from kindergarten to grade 12, were in a beautiful environment of a Christian school and they learned all kinds of things. And I would watch the disconnect as so often they knew all kinds, they could win sword drills, they could win the Bible encyclopedia things, they could win all of those types of things, but the correlation between knowing stuff and living out a life of the gospel sometimes didn't line up. And so I took that and I, I changed it and actually been the kind of the theme of our church and our first year of ministry at Calvary Baptist was the idea of learning God's word loving God's word, and then living God's word out. And that's exactly what Paul is writing about in Ephesians. All six chapters is really a dissertation of this. If you actually take the time to read it, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he basically writes to the Ephesians and he tells them that the great essential doctrines of the faith, everything that is central and vital to understanding the way of salvation is found in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. But from chapter 4, and if you noticed it when I read it, to chapter 6, he now Paul gets really personal and really practical, and he starts to expound, and dare I use the word command what these great essentials should create in us. In brief, God says in chapters 1, 2, and 3, I have made you a saint. That's really what, if you were to summarize Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 in a sentence, God says, I have made you a saint. But in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he basically says, now live like one. Live like one. If you're a Christian, live like one. And there are certain things about this letter that should stand out to you. Just a couple of tidbits. There are 41 commands in the book of Ephesians. Only one of them are found in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Of the 41 commands, 40 of them are found in chapters 4, 5, and 6. In fact, if you read any of the letters of Paul, you'll find this pattern. He begins a letter, usually writes very theological in the first half of it, or even more than that, Romans, chapters 1 through 11. It's all a theology of salvation. Chapter 12 through 16, it's all how does that salvation look like in real life. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Philippians. He does it over and over again where he gives you the theology. He tells you stuff that you need to learn, but then he says, now, here's how you live this out. And I think it's important for us to figure this out in the 21st century in Canada when we look around at us and we are supposed to be a Judeo-Christian culture. It's funny, James said he heard me 
at TGC Ontario back in October when I left that conference and I got into a taxi cab to go back to uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, our taxi driver was from Lebanon. And I was going back to the airport with a couple of other pastors. And so we engaged him in conversation and we, we told him that we were pastors. He wanted to know what we were doing. And we told him we were pastors. And here was his question to me. Why is your country so unchristian when you guys claim to be Christian? That was his question to us. Why are you so unchristian when you claim to be Christian? And this is something we need to realize. These three chapters, and specifically starting in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul says, learn it, now love it, and then live it. Kind of like that young preacher who thrilled his congregation. I don't know what Pastor James was like three and a half years ago. I met people here who told me they love their pastor and they love his preaching. But imagine with me on his first sermon, Pastor James gets up, thrills you with his exegesis, his ability to communicate, and, and just preaches this sermon saying, gird up your loins. And you all love it, and you're challenged. You come back Sunday, preaches the exact same sermon. Now, some of you are like, all right, it was a good sermon again. I, maybe I needed to hear it the second time. You come back the third week, preaches the exact same sermon again. Now, some of you are going, does he have more than one sermon? Fourth Sunday, same sermon. Finally, now, deacons are talking to elders and so on. And someone says, someone's got to talk to Pastor James we got to find out what's on the go. And so you go to him, and someone says, don't you have more than just one sermon? And he says, oh, yes, I do. I have quite a number. But when you haven't done anything about the first one yet, why should I preach a second one? (laughs) And it's funny, because if you read the Gospels, and you read Jesus interacting with the disciples, um, you'll be shocked at how much... Jesus thought repetition aids learning. And how often he would circle those disciples back to the same thing and to the same thing and to the same thing till they finally started getting it. Till it wasn't just that they had learned it, now they had learned how to live it. And that's what I want you to do with me. So let me all ask you a question, or let me ask all of you a question this morning. Here's my premise. The gospel changes lives. Amen? Now, that was pathetic. So let's try that again. The gospel changes lives. All right, good stuff. But what does that mean? Because eventually I can get you excited to say these things because church, today God's word has already, just in reading it, called you to action. This passage calls you and I to respond. It calls us, dare I say it, to a duty. A duty. And let me expound on that. And before you think... Uh Uh-oh, Pastor James brought a guy in here who's going to rail on us and get all legalistic and give us a great to-do list. No, 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 relax, relax. It's actually much worse, all right? (laughs) See, what, what Jesus asks us to do all throughout the Gospels, what Paul, through the inspiration of God, is asking us to do in Ephesians 4 is something, quite frankly, that you will never, ever be able to do in your strength. You'll never pull it off. That's why you need, we need, I need Jesus. He has done for you and I what you and I could never do alone. 
in our strength or even attempt to maintain. You see, wasn't it Jesus in Matthew 5 in that Sermon on the Mount who said these words? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I say that because you cannot and you will not live the Christian life in your own strength or in your own wisdom. Remember I said to Pastor James, I got married to Debbie when I was 20, but I got saved at 21. But as far as my home church was concerned, I got saved when I was 13. Because I made a profession to a set of propositions in a service. I had learned it, but I had never loved it. And therefore, I was attempting to live it by simply conforming to a set of externals of people watching. And you can fool some of the people most of the time. But you know what? The hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. You will lie more to you than anybody else. And so when Jesus got a hold of my heart when I was 21 years old, living in Halifax, Nova Scotia, I had married my childhood sweetheart, and I was trying so desperately to have a foot in the world and a foot in church, and I was frustrated, and I had a praying, nagging mother who would call me every Sunday and ask me two questions. Had I gone to church and was I reading my Bible? And I dreaded Sunday afternoons for that phone call. And God, through his mercy, caused me to be very frustrated one night in 1993 when I couldn't find anything on television to watch. And I went into my bedroom in a fit of exasperation, looked into my closet and saw the spine of a book called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. Thought I would, in pure boredom, pick that book up and read a few chapters so I could tell my mother, not only did I go to church, not only did I read my Bible, I was reading a Christian book. And that, I thought, would buy me a couple of weeks of mom thinking her boy was a good boy. Well, if you know anything about that book, the first chapter is basically, to paraphrase, to be a preacher of grace, you must know grace yourself. And the passage is James 1, 21, that if you're, not a, if you're only a hearer of the word and not a doer of it, you're like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then leaves and forgets what he saw. And for 21 years, I was a great hearer of the word. And even my attempts to do were simply to either impress people or contractually earn God's favor. And you know what happens when you try to live a Christian life like that? You are perpetually tired, perpetually frustrated, perpetually acting. And you will either resolve and cement yourself in legalism or you will reject and abandon the gospel altogether. And I know because I can give you afterwards a list of my peers who have done one or the other. And many of you know those people, and you might be sitting here having that fight yourself. And so when I say duty or expectation, I want you to notice I'm not saying what God wants all right? There's a big difference. Remember that great hymn of the faith? When I survey the wondrous cross written by Isaac Watts, what does he say? The last line of the last verse. Love so amazing, so divine. What? What, church? Demands. Demands. It doesn't say asks, doesn't suggest, doesn't hope for. Love so amazing, so divine demands what? My soul, my life, my all. 
You see, our world, the world that you and I live in, in Canada and the United States and North America, longs for something real. Our culture longs, even though it doesn't do it, it longs for people of integrity, people for a human spirit of oneness and unity. And you think about that, just look at pop culture. Um, If you want to be both bewildered and somewhat amused, look at American politics. I'm not saying that out of turn. I just spent 10 days in Texas. They're both bewildered and amused, and in some cases, dismayed. I have to be careful here because I don't want to disobey the Word of God, but we have a very liberal, liberal prime minister. And we are wondering about, does his million-dollar smile have any character to it? But now let's kind of come inside the church I come from the city of St. John's. The largest Roman Catholic sexual scandal in the world happened there. They're still having public hearings about it to this day. How many pastors and preachers and televangelists do you and I know that said one thing and did another? They could talk a good game. They could preach a good game. But then you found out that they had learned it, but they weren't living it. And why? Because they didn't love it. And so I want you to see that with me this morning very quickly, and then I want to make all this very practical. And here's what I want you to understand. Notice again, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. Now, that's a, if you mark in your Bible or highlight, mark that, urge you to do certain things, to walk in a matter worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then he gives you what that looks like, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and then he tells you how you know if you're doing that, because then you're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, not the unity of yourself, the unity of the Spirit, and here's how you do that in the bond of peace. So what do you see? What is the Holy Spirit exhorting you about with this passage? We know that the Word of God is profitable in all ways, right? For rebuke, for reproof, for instruction and righteousness. So what is that doing for you? And I want you to notice right off the bat that Paul is writing to a church, not just to an individual. This passage is written to a church body, to how to function as a church body. So as Harold Honer says in his Ephesians commentary, he says this, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity of individual believers is measured in light of the body of believers. Individual spiritual growth that is not shared with the rest of the body is not true spiritual growth or maturity. Although today individualism highly prizes independence, the New Testament envisions individuals dependent on the Lord and fellow members of the body in a corporate setting. So I will tell you, anybody that comes to me and says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, I very gently, but very urgently and passionately say, then you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. When you believe in Jesus and you hope to one day be with Jesus, you're going to be with Jesus and his bride, the church. And if you're looking for a perfect church, folks, it's exhausting. You'll never find it. And if you do, as my father would say, don't join it because you'll wreck it. 
All right? So be careful in having a standard. Look, I've been around church since I was born. I've been around a biblical church since I was five. I'm going to give you an illustration of it. I am not saying that churches don't hurt people. I'm not saying that I haven't been hurt by the church. I have. Some of the greatest hurts I've ever felt is inside of a church. But let me tell you, some of the greatest loves I've ever felt are inside of a church. Some of the greatest rescuing that I've ever experienced is from people that have wrapped their arms around me in love and prayer in the church. Because you know why? We're family. Last time I checked, I've known this woman since I was five. You know what I did the first day I met her? I threw rocks at her. (laughs) There is nobody in this room that I have hurt more than that woman. But there's nobody in this room that I love in a relationship like that woman. That's called marriage. So listen... This is written to a church. So very quickly here, number one, I want you to notice how Paul does this. Number one, if you take notes, I want you to notice the authority and command of the call. So you and I are called to learn it, love it, live it. So here's Paul saying, here's my authority and here's my command. He says, therefore, so find out whenever you find in your Bible a therefore, find out what it's there for. Okay, therefore, in chapter one of chapter four, verse one refers back to everything he has just said in the first half of this letter, specifically how he ended chapter three. It refers back to everything starting in chapter one. We're told we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Then we're saved by grace through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Chapter three, we're now a a new body. We're a new family. We're part of a new temple. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit through the salvation brought about by Jesus Christ, poured out on us by Jesus, great love. And by the way, commercial, Jesus loves the world, but I will tell you, he loves his own with a great love. You will find that the only place where there's an adjective put with Jesus, God's love, is found in Ephesians chapter 3, or chapter 2. He loved us with a great love. I hope you go here and realize God loves you greatly. He doesn't just love you. He loves you greatly. You have more than just the general grace of God. You have his great loving grace that's been poured out upon you. And so Paul says this, and then he says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. For the Lord. Paul's, Paul is establishing a relationship with the church at Ephesus by reminding them again of not only what he has already told them, but of who he is and where he is. He's not saying what I'm about to tell you on how to live. I'm not telling you do as I say, not as I do. He's, about to, he's reminding them, I am writing this to you having lived it. Having done it, having experienced the ups and downs, the good, the bad, and all of this of it. And he's establishing that and he says, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I suffer for this gospel because I am in union with Jesus Christ. And because of that, I am in union with you. That's why I was blessed by a brother when he prayed. And he prayed for the Christians in Africa. And he prayed for these, because you know what? Those that are suffering... We're in union with them. Oh, don't, let us not be as Christians. Have you ever noticed this? When you go to restaurants or you're at Canadian Tire in the waiting room and the car is being fixed and, and, and they show you that little child, uh, you know, when World Vision comes on or something. And I've, I, I, study, I love to watch people 
And so I'm sitting there, and, and everybody's kind of locked on the news and everything. And then that commercial comes on, and then everybody checks their phone, or they get back to the paper. Because you know what? You, you, you feel bad looking at that. In fact, the greatest example of that was, for me was the amazing race. See, we have, we have a lot of an emotional response to people in need, but there's a difference between um, feeling bad and actual compassion. In the amazing race, I remember they all went to India, and they all get off the train, and they are met with these mobs and mobs of beggars. And, and, and they all make comment, and some of the teams cry on the train, oh, this is heartbreaking. Not one stopped to give anybody money. Because they were racing for a million bucks. And a lot of us will have an emotional response to bad things, but then act like, you know what, out of sight, out of mind. And I'm so glad because Paul here is saying, listen, I have suffered for Jesus, and therefore I'm a part of you. And folks, listen, here at Maple Avenue Baptist, you are a part of not only this church, but the church And many people today will meet secretly or will be arrested or will have their property confiscated or will wake up this morning in prison, separated from wives and children because they will not recant or renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. And we do that together as the church. So Paul's establishing not only his authority and relationship, but the command of the call. He says, to walk in a matter worthy. Now, these are incredible words. These are incredible words because Paul is saying, I command you to have a lifestyle that is in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, the use of the Greek construction here also means your lifestyle now should be different than your old lifestyle. All right, it is as simple as that old Sunday school song, right? The things I used to do, don't do them anymore. Remember those things? Thing I used to do, right? Things I used to say, don't say them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. I went to summer camp. Listen, man, I, I did it all, okay? Paul is saying now your conduct, your desires, your passions, your hobbies, your goals, your outlook are all different than what the world's is. And even what we share with the world... We are to do so for different reasons. See, there was a couple in Charlottetown. They're actually living in Nova Scotia now, but they grew up in Charlottetown, and they donated a million dollars to the local hospital called the QEH. And they were interviewed on the front page of The Guardian, and here's what fascinated me. This this very generous couple who had given a million dollars to a hospital, they said, why did you do it? And you know what their response was? Because it makes me feel good. You see, that's the extent of the world's goodness. You see, the Christians are called to do good things even when it doesn't make you feel good. We now do good things because it gives God glory. Even if we don't get any earthly praise or even any earthly pleasure. And you'll see that worked out in this passage. Paul comes up with that amazing word, worthy. You might think of the word in terms of worship, right? Thou art worthy. Revelations chapter 4 and 5. The word in Greek means to have worth or value. But there's so much more to it than that. In fact, the other side of it in the Greek means balance and matching. So in light of this, I want you to think of two different scales. One on on one side is all the things God has done for you. Salvation, elected you, adopted by the Father, unity in the church, unified to Christ Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, walk worthy of this. In other words, if your life balanced in practice with these amazing promises. In other words, again, my father used to say, Stephen, 
Your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Okay? Does your words match your life? Is it worthy? Is it balanced? Okay, maybe we should never call ourselves Christians, but disciples. And let the world call us Christians because, you know, it was the world who first called us Christians. In Acts chapter 11, the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. That's Barnabas talking about Paul. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now we've reversed it. The world doesn't know what to call us, and we label ourselves Christians. The way it was in the beginning was we lived out discipleship. We were followers of Jesus Christ, and the world nicknamed us and said, You know what? That's a little Christ. That's a little Christ. Does our culture, the, the Maple Avenue, does the people around you, can they look at you and the way you live life, the way you react to life, the ups and downs of it, and say, you know what? I don't know if I like them. I don't know if I agree with them. But I will tell you, they act just like the guy they say they follow. Or do we have a religion? And people, I got a, a real eye-opener of that when I, as a father, I heard my teenage son out in our, our driveway playing street hockey with his local friends, and the window was open, and uh, they got into a religious discussion. And, and the boys all of a sudden started asking them what church they went to. And I heard one boy say, well, I'm Catholic. And one boy said, I'm Anglican. And then Brandon said, I'm Baptist. And, and Brandon said it as if, you know, that's, just, that's my label, man. You know, that's, that's where dad takes me every week. And it really, really challenged me then to start having different conversations with my son because I did not want my son to swap his father's Anglicanism for baptism. I wanted him to be a follower of Christ. And so are we going to learn it, love it, and live it? And so we do. We are commanded to walk, have a lifestyle that is worthy. And so, so doctrine and practice, you need to have both. Worthy is a life matching. In other words, your life is supposed to make Christ attractive. Even if people are disagreeing with you, do we make Christ attractive? Can I give you this? Write these two, these two verses down. John chapter 13, verse 35. John 13, 35. A new commandment I leave you, right? That you love one another. By this, now listen to this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. So how you and I love each other proves to the world that we are really Christians. Now, love there doesn't mean live and let live. Read your Bible. Love means confrontation. Love means accountability. Love means... Grace is not never confronting sin. Grace is I confront your sin and promise to walk with you through it. That's what Jesus does. So John 13, 35, how you and I love each other proves to the world out there that we are who we say we are. So we act like a family. But then Jesus prays in John 17, 20 to 24, he prays and he says this amazing thing. He says, I don't pray for these only, referring to the disciples, but for all those who will believe on me through them. That's you and I. And then he says, oh, Father, that they would be together as one, as you and I are one. By this, the world will know that you have sent me. Now, I want you to put that together. The way you and I love each other proves to that world we are truly followers of Christ. The way you and I are unified around the doctrines of the Word of God proves to the world that Jesus truly is God. So this is the whole learn it, live it. 
It's not good enough if you can recite the Westminster Confession, if you know all New City Catechism, if you can win all the meritorious awards in the world at Awana, and you can do all these things. If the world looks at you and says they talk a good game, but they are out for number one, and they have no sense of what the Bible clearly teaches and preaches and live it out, then we actually say to the world watching, we're not truly believers, and maybe God, Jesus, isn't who he said he was. So that's why Paul says that you were to do this. Now, I want you to notice the conditions of the call. You find that in verse 2, right? He says, with humility. What's humility? Humility is the opposite of pride or self-assertion. Humility. Friends, if we're saved by grace and nothing in and of ourselves, then the only true reaction must be humility. I didn't save myself. I love D.A. Carson who said, Christians, we're simply beggars who have found food who want to tell other beggars where to find it. A beggar who has found food is not proud. A beggar who has found food thinks they've hit the jackpot. You see, that's giving out your testimony. Don't think of sharing and being witnesses as a propositional gospel. And we come up with all these cheesy ways to try and share our faith with people. Like, you know, you're standing by someone in an elevator, some hot out today. Yeah, hot. You know, the sun. Do you know who made the sun? And all these little cheesy one-liners we come up with? No, instead, just be, you know, Lotto 649's got it right. If you win 50 million bucks, you will do the happy dance. And you won't care who's around you. Read the Gospels. When people truly meet Jesus, they don't need a share your faith Sunday school class. They just give it out. They are simply overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for them. What, what, remember when Nathaniel, remember, or sorry, remember in, in John chapter 6, the Samaritan woman, and she's there at the well, and God, God tells her, you know, yeah, you're right when you say you don't live with your husband, because the guy you're living with is not your husband. In fact, you've had five of them, and the guy you're living with now, and she goes, and watch her, watch her evangelistic scheme when she goes back into town. Guys, I have found the one who is the Messiah, because he told me everything about me. That was her entire delivery. And that entire town was mesmerized by Jesus Christ. You want to have an influence out there? The way you love each other, the way we're unified around the Word of God, not just our opinions, the Word of God, and we're humble. We just, you know what? Can, <laughs> you know, I was living for me. I was trying to make ends meet. I was trying to make sense of life. I was trying to get by. I was trying to have my white picket fit. And Jesus found me and did for me what I could never do. And I just, I just can't help but talk about him. That will get you some weird looks. But someone will say, can I talk to you? Before I was in ministry, I was actually the training and support manager for winners. I traveled the country and I opened up all their stores, did their training uh, seminars, made sure they got up and on the go. And I would just share my faith with people. And often I was laughed at. I'd pray before my meals and weird little things like that. I'd talk about being in church or in my seminars. I would talk about something I had heard. But it would never ever fail that I'd be in my office and there'd be a little rap at the door and a man or a woman would walk in and sit down and someone would start to cry or someone would say, you know, my husband just left me yesterday and you just seem to be happy. Can you help me? And it wasn't because I had a program, it's because I had a savior. And we have to learn it, love it, and live it. So it's humility. And then he says, gentleness gentleness is where we get that word for meekness it means never being angry at the wrong time and always being angry at the right time 
We are to be gentle. When you're wrong, you don't seek vengeance. You don't get bitter. If someone else is wrong or wronged, you have a brave and willingness to confront and defend the weak. That's what Christians are supposed to be. And then he says, patience. Can I ask you honestly right now in the quietness of your own chair there as you sit there, would you say that your lifestyle is defined as Christianity as you're a patient person? You're patient? Patience is the exercise of a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. Moms and dads, you know about patience, right? I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that when your child becomes a teenager, put him in a barrel and seal it with only a hole in it till he becomes 19. And when he turns 19, seal the hole. Okay? All right? You know what? Debbie and I have laughed because I don't know who said it, but being a parent is wanting to hug and strangle your child at the same time. Right? One of the things that I have learned as a parent is patience. Why would I do that? Why am I patient with my children. You know why? Because it says here, in, look at verse 3, bearing with one another in love. You know why I'm patient? Because I love them. If you and I are Christians, if we're going to walk worthy of our calling with humility and gentleness and patience. The only way you're going to find, if, if, if you understand, I love you and you love me because Christ loves us. What you've truly experienced, you want to give to others. What you truly experience that is selfish, you'll hoard it to yourself. Notice the difference between covetousness and jealousy. Coveting, coveting is when I want what you have. All right? Sometimes as parents, we mess this up with our kids. We say, don't be jealous. No, no, no. Jealousy, remember, it says God is jealous. What's that mean? Jealousy is I don't want to give you what I have. All right? God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share us with the world. He wants you and I to be completely fixed on Him because He loves us. We bear with one another. We have humility. We have gentleness. We have all these patience because we bear with one another in love. Remember in Matthew 17, 17, Jesus asks His disciples, How long will I have to bear with you? He says this, surrounded by the great transfiguration as He casts out a demon. But Jesus does bear in love with them. Paul uses this command to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, the Romans. The only thing he ever says to the Romans in in Romans, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Owe no man anything but to have a debt of love. Bear with one another love. How will you be humble with each other and gentle with each other and patient with one another is if you love one another. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, our couple is getting married. I don't know if you'll have 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding or not, but it is often read at weddings. It's often sung about at weddings. And every time it does, and I say this full disclosure, it was sung at my wedding and read at my wedding. And I should have been told, this is actually a chapter for the church. Paul didn't write this and say, here's your wedding manual. All right, it was written to a church on how to be a church. And he says, love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. But love hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things. And Paul wraps it up with another command. He basically says, now fight for the call. He gives you the authority and the command, and then he tells you how to do it. Now he says, fight for this call. And notice in verse 3, eager to. It means to be zealously engaged. Make haste. 
be on the lookout to fight against anything that would destroy the unity of Jesus Christ among us. And then he says, maintaining it, eager to maintain it. If you have to maintain it, that means you've got to work at it. It doesn't happen naturally. Folks, one thing I will, I'm picking on this poor engaged couple, but you know what? You will never just pop goes the weasel, have a good marriage. You'll have to maintain it. Paul Tripp, I noticed you have one of the books out there, How People Change. If you ever get a chance for you that are married to read his book, What Did You Expect? An excellent book, sucks all the romance out of love. <laughs> but he tells you how to have a good marriage. Because you know what we problem? We often use that word, my marriage or my family or my church is dysfunctional. I get the giggles when I hear that. Because dysfunctional means you've stopped working. Dysfunction. A church with problems is not dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional when you don't deal with the problems. A church with problems that's dealing with it is actually the exemplary example of functional. A marriage that is absent of... I remember I did this very study and I had a guy look, me and my wife have never fought. I said, leave the room. And then I stood his wife up and she corrected him. They fought that night. As Paul Tripp says, you know, marriages are weedy, and you have to weed it. You have to maintain it. We have to be eager to maintain this unity. Christ is our commander, and Christ is unified, and Christ is our command, and we are to never let it be broken, and then it leads to peace, the bond of peace, and that's what binds us together. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and we're commanded to zealously maintain that defense. So let me bring all this in to conclusion. Very quickly, are you living life, church, worthy? That is in balance with the salvation you have claimed to receive. If you live life in humility, then that means you're going to self-renounce self-centeredness. If you live life in gentleness, that means you must renounce harshness and violence. If you live life in patience, that means you must renounce the tyranny of your own agenda. It's not about you. It's all about God. If you live life in love, that means you must renounce our our rights. One man said this, be careful of standing on your rights, for then God may stand on his. To put up in love is what families and friends should do. That means tolerating activities or choices or inconvenience that sometimes we don't like. It may mean tolerating different musical styles or going through a a trying time with someone in the church. It also means that you cannot write that other person off. You are actively pursuing the unity of this church. Friends, unity is not the goal. Unity in Christ is. The unity comes from a shared faith and a shared knowledge of Christ. Read down verses 4 to 14. But I said, this is not meant to be a legalistic sermon. I'm going to wrap up with this. Here's the difference between legalism and a right understanding of duty as found in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Talked about parenting. You see, you see this version of me. I'm an only child. My parents came to Christ when I was five years old. By the time I was seven, we had 12 foster kids. My parents turned our basement into a school for those that were mentally disabled. Every kind of dysfunction and sin, I have lived with it. And from seven to 14, experienced it. 
So I was sexually abused for five years. I was stabbed twice, beaten regularly, unknowns to my parents. I wouldn't tell them. And because of that, I became an angry, predatory teenager. And at 14, decided I had had enough of God and Jesus Christ and formed my then pastor dad, I'm done with Jesus. I'm glad it's worked out for you. It hasn't worked out for me. I'll make sure the Sunday dinner is cooked. You go have a good time with Jesus. And my father said, if you're going to live under my house, you've got to obey my rules. So I packed a garbage bag and left. Went down to the neighbor's house, knocked on the door and told her, my father just kicked me out of the house because I wouldn't go to church. In 1980s Newfoundland, when you told another person that, and they felt you were just being a punk, they turned you around, kicked you in your rear end, and sent you back to your family. It was community discipline at that time. So I could tell by the look on the woman's face this wasn't going to work. So I said to her, oh, and by the way, my dad beats me with a stick. That got her attention. That was a Saturday. Monday, I was at the Department of Social Services telling a social worker and a police officer that my father beat me, that my Christian school beat me, and the church that he pastored and the church I grew up in beats kids with sticks. This was when Mount Karsha was just blowing up. I immediately became a ward of the state. My father was investigated. It tore our family apart. My aunt, my mother's sister, took me in, and her words were, I will do for your son what you are incapable of doing. I will raise him. My father's house was egged. He got death threats. He had to temporarily leave the ministry. I became, I went to live with my aunt, and I busted that up. I lasted 90 days with my aunt when she kicked me out. And I became a ward of the state. In fact, I had, they had called every foster home from St. John's, Newfoundland to St. John, New Brunswick. Nobody wanted me. And my option was I, I crashed at my grandmother's. And I was that Monday to go to Whitburn to the, boy, or the kids' detention center in Whitburn, Newfoundland. And a family from my home church heard I was in trouble and called me and said, Would you like to stay with us for a week? Here's two rules. You have to go to church with us and you have to be in when we tell you to be in. What choice did I have? I show up at church. The pastor had been on holidays. If he had been there, I would not have been allowed to go to the church because he wouldn't have let me. He had just gotten back from his holidays. I go to the church that Sunday. What does he preach on but the prodigal son? And before he said, let's close our eyes in prayer, I was out of my chair. I went home with that family and I called my dad. I hadn't talked with my father in months he picked up the phone. He said, hello, Bray's residence, because we're formal in our house, even in Newfoundland. And here was the conversation. Daddy, I want to come home. He said, sit tight and I'll come get you. He lived 90 kilometers away, so it took about an hour and a half for him to get there. Now, for that 90 minutes, I sat on the corner of the bed in that room and I rehearsed my speech. I tried to do a cost analysis of my rebellion. I tried to figure out how long I would be grounded, how much my father would take him to trust me. All that was, I tried to come up with the way to let him. Then I started thinking about, will I ever be allowed back in church? Will I ever go to the Christian school? What will happen? I was still thinking about this girl over here because she was really cute. Um, I was thinking about all these things. My father comes. I can hear them, the muffled Charlie Brown adult voices down the hallway. And my father comes down and opens the door and I stand up and I am ready to launch in my speech when my father falls to his knees, puts out his arms and says, come to daddy. And I ran into my father's arms 
And I went to go and start my speech again. And you know what he said to me? I'm sorry I failed you as a father. Was my dad duty bound to do that? Yes. He's my dad. But what do you think motivated him to do it? Was amazing love. Imagine a church of Christians. Yes, we are duty bound to love him and serve him. But when you think of what he has done for you, what he has rescued you from, how he'll never leave you, how he will be with you, how he will do all the... Can you not dancing love so amazing, so divine? Demands my heart, my soul, my life. Learn it, love it, live it, and watch what God will do. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, I do pray, as David Platt says so often, that the people here will have heard a better sermon than I have preached. Your word is so deep and vast, and Lord, quite frankly, I find it difficult to preach one-off sermons. I thank you for at least the perceived patience of the men and women in this room as I think I might have gone a little over time. But my God and my Savior, I want people to understand that the hero of my life is you and that as I call this church to live out the gospel, to to not just be legalistic, Lord, that is so cheap and counterfeit, but Father, to be genuinely holy, the only way we do that is if we think better. Lord, I'm not asking this church to try harder, I'm asking them to believe better. Father, I'm asking them to go to your word and be reminded of you, Lord. I've learned even in the last four days of spending some alone time with my wife that when I think about my wife, I love her more. When I think about myself, I demand more of her. And that is why Father Paul said that whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Father, cause this church to think highly and deeply of you. And Father, then that they'll notice that that's how you fall in love with you. That is how we have a relationship with you. That is how we are motivated. Father, the duty is there, but it's motivated by love. And Lord, I pray that this church will know what it means not to be in love with your stuff, but in love with you. Again, I say with Spurgeon, Lord, if you offered me hell with Christ, I'd want it. If you offered me heaven without him, I wouldn't take it. Just give me Jesus. Father God, may you use Pastor James and the other pastors and elders and the leaders of this church and those who teach and preach. Father, protect them and use them. But Father, give, may give them trumpets of grace to proclaim God's word. And may this church rise up and love each other and be unified around you and the gospel and that this entire region would be revived because we live, love, and learn together of Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who's searching Lord, I do not believe in accidents. People are here today by divine appointment. 
And Lord, if someone's got a question or someone's hurting or someone's angry or someone is wrapped in shame or guilt or someone is frozen and paralyzed by sin, whatever it might be, Father God, give them the grace and the courage and the safety to know that they can talk to the pastors here. They can talk to the friend that brought them. Father, that this is a safe place to be real and honest and transparent because the gospel's bigger than all of our junk. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.